welcome to episode 17 of Radicals in Conversation, the monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. It's good to be back in the studio for our latest discussion. We're here recording this on Friday, the 25th of January. And to say it's been a chaotic start to the year here in the UK would be an understatement, as we hurtle towards the prospect of a no-deal Brexit and the collapse of Parliament into a bewildering pantomime, you'd be forgiven for thinking that there was no other news, that nothing else really could be happening, politically speaking, that would merit our attention. But this is obviously not the case. There are other cruelties being enacted through policy that predate the current political crisis, even if Brexit does promise to make them much worse, that require not just our attention, but also our resistance. This week, for example, a story emerged about Nasser Ullah Khan, Pakistani national who's lived in the UK for nine years. He's overstayed his visa and his immigration status makes him ineligible for free health care. Consequently, he was denied a life-saving heart operation just before Christmas. And now after having been told that he only has weeks left to live, he's received a bill for his palliative care payable up front for over £30,000. The regulations requiring the National Health Service to charge refused asylum seekers and those who have not got leave to remain up front for their medical treatment were brought in by Theresa May's government in 2017, and they're just one of the building blocks of the so-called hostile environment that's been constructed by the Home Office since. A sprawling web, as Liberty puts it, of immigration controls embedded in the heart of our public services and communities. I'm Chris Brown, and I'm joined today by three guests who are all campaigning or working on the front line of this issue at the intersection of healthcare, human rights, migrant rights, and the hostile environment. So I'd like to welcome firstly Guppy Corbola, director at MedAct, a global health charity that wants to bring about a world in which everyone can exercise their human right to health. MedAct organises health workers to take social action on the structural barriers to health equity and justice. Also here is Minnie Rahman, Public Affairs and Campaigns Manager at JCWI, the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants, and Bethan Lant, Casework Manager at Praxis, a charity providing practical, legal and emotional support for migrants at risk. So first, I'd like to thank you all for taking the time out of your day to come on the show. Before we go any further, I should also say Polito's curated a selection of books that touch on the themes of this month's episode for those of you out there that are interested in a little wider reading. And as a sweetener, they're all 50% off for the next 30 days through plutobooks.com. You just need to enter the code PODCAST at the checkout to get that discount. The link for your browser is www.plutobooks.com forward slash podcast reading. That's one word. Now, perhaps before we dive too deep, each of you could just quickly tell us a bit more about your different organisations and the work that you do there. So, Bethan, perhaps you'd like to go first. Yes, certainly. So, as I said, I'm casework manager at Praxis Community Projects. Praxis is a charity working with migrants in a very broad sense of the word migrants. So we do work with refugees and asylum seekers, but we also work with people who've been refused asylum, with people who've overstayed visas, people who are still experiencing immigration issues because they at one time migrated. So some of the Windrush clients, for example, were ours, people who'd been here for very many years. And we do deal sometimes with European migrants, particularly those who end up street homeless, who experience mental health issues or other health problems which then cause them problems. We offer a range of services, casework, particularly around immigration and destitution. We see a lot of people who are entirely destitute without means to support themselves and we try and find them pathways out of destitution and support them while that's happening. So I'm Minnie Rahman. I'm Public Affairs and Campaigns Manager at the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. 
JCWI provides legal services for all types of migrants, as from asylum seekers and refugees to those who have been undocumented for many years. As well as providing legal services, we also campaign quite heavily on getting the law changed and work um, with sector partners on policy. We also carry out strategic litigation as and when is necessary to challenge the government on some of their policies, including the hostile environment. So, for example, at the moment we have a legal challenge against the Home Office for right to rent, which is the hostile environment policy which asks landlords to check the migration status of tenants. And I'm Guppy Corbola. I'm the director at MedAct. Uh, MedAct are a global health charity. You described it very well, actually. <laughs> um, we've been around uh, for about 30 years, uh, primarily made up of health workers um, or those working in the health system. And uh, we organise health workers particularly because we believe they are the strongest voice to challenge barriers to health equality and justice. Um, and we work in four broad areas. So we split that up. Um, between climate and ecology, economic justice, peace and security, and uh, particularly related to this issue is access to healthcare. Um, and that connects to people's status or um, those accessing care in detention. Brilliant. I wonder, Guppy, if perhaps, because a large thing of what we're going to talk about today is is healthcare, perhaps you could just explain what universal healthcare is. I know that's kind of a basic idea, but the history of that as an idea as well, what it actually means and why it's important to be fighting for. So universal healthcare is the concept or practice of providing uh, healthcare and creating a health system that uh, enables all to seek care. And that's at all stages within the system. So through prevention to actually uh, getting treatment, um, palliative care or rehabilitation. And it is a practice that exists in 27 countries, but its actual existence differs slightly. So one would say that the UK has universal health care and it enables people to access care free of charge from the point of use. But of course, um, the conversation that we're having today is that that is something that has been challenged with the uh, introduction of charging up front um, to those who are perceived to be uh, overseas or migrants. But yeah, it's something that the WHO has been pushing for over 30 to 40 years. It's part of the Sustainable Development Goals, which we have signed up to. But um, what's interesting is that in the 2012 NHS reforms, there was a clause put in that meant that the Secretary of State for Health didn't have duty uh, to provide universal health care. So there's a bit of a conflict there with what's in our national and domestic laws versus what we signed up to in terms of international agreements. But uh, yeah, the construction of a universal healthcare system is one that is fundamentally grounded on equity. So regardless of your ability to pay, you are still able to exercise your human right to health. So it's something that MedAct believes in fundamentally. It's interesting hearing a little bit about the payment upfront that's been introduced. Who would be required, I guess, to pay upfront for healthcare in this country? I think we could all probably answer that. <laughs> okay, yeah. But it's, it's quite, yeah. Go on, go ahead, Bethan. Um, well, essentially, it's most people who haven't got the right set of immigration documents at that particular time, which is quite a wide range of people. I mean, what I often find is when you're talking about charging for healthcare, People talk in the terms of what they state are healthcare tourists. So they talk about people who've come to this country with a primary aim to access our health services and get free health services. 
the vast majority of people who are being charged for services are not health tourists. They are people who are here, who've had valid reasons to be here at one stage or other, may have an application which is outstanding with the Home Office and be waiting for their status, but don't quite have the documents at present, but they are people who are ordinarily resident here in the UK. They don't have anywhere else to go, and they're then being told that they must pay to access healthcare, so they're then here with serious health conditions which they can't get treatment for. It's probably also helpful to say that those who have not been living in the country for six months um, or don't have evidence to show that they've been living in the country for six months, which would include someone with a British passport, would also be eligible for charging too. Yeah, it's people who are ordinarily resident, so that means here for at least six months generally. I mean, I think there's one story which speaks to the issues we're going to be talking about today and that will probably have stuck in people's minds from last year because it kind of precipitated the Windrush scandal. And that's of Albert Thompson, the 63-year-old Londoner who was denied NHS cancer care in 2018, despite having lived and worked here since the 70s. I think, Bethan, is it right that Praxis was involved in Albert's case? Yes, that's right. Albert was one of our clients. He came to our attention through our work with homeless migrants, the street legal project that we do in partnership with St Mungo's. And we were already trying to help him to sort out his immigration paperwork because he's one of these group of people who came here a number of years ago. They were legalised in British law. They were said, yes, it's fine, you're legal, but there weren't any documents given out at that time to say, yes, you are here legally. You didn't need those documents at that stage. At that time, border control was really about getting in and out of the country. Since that time internal border controls developed and more and more people who've been here for very many years started being asked for documents when they try and access other services. So Albert um, had previously had treatment for prostate cancer and he had recovered and was doing the ongoing checks when it was discovered that it looked like it had redeveloped again. And then when he represented for care at that stage, he was told, no, actually, unless you can pay £53,000 up front, we're not going to be giving you any treatment. Now, he'd been here since 1973, since he was 16 years of age. He'd never lived anywhere else. He'd worked and paid taxes here all his life. And here he is with a very serious health condition, life-threatening. I mean, we have all this publicity at the moment about how many people die of prostate cancer each year. And he's been told, actually, we're not going to give you that treatment unless you can give us that money. How common or unusual was his case in the current context of the hostile environment? There's been a development of the laws around charging for healthcare. So previously, while there were some laws around who would get charged for healthcare, often people weren't checked as thoroughly up front. But there were some changes which happened last year, which meant that the hospitals have more um, obligation on them to actually check everyone's documents. So theoretically, everyone should be checked when they go to hospital. If I pitch up and say, yeah, actually, I'm not feeling too well and they want to do some checks on me, they should check my documents as well. Obviously, what often happens in practice is it's the people who look a little bit foreign who actually get checked most thoroughly and most often in those kind of situations. And so suddenly people who've accessed healthcare previously, had no problems, are being told, oh, have you got documents? Have you got this? Have you got that? Not every British person has a British passport. So if you're a black British citizen and you present at hospital and can't show a passport, then there may be a chance that you could be refused healthcare or it would be delayed pending further checks upon your immigration status in the UK. I mean, one of the situations we see more often than people being denied treatment up front is people getting the care and then being charged for it afterwards and then being chased mm. by, by debt collectors mm. because they have a large outstanding bill with the NHS. 
So we, for example, work with a lot of women, primarily single mothers, who have British children. So they've been to hospital to give birth to this British child because they didn't actually have status at the point of birth. Then they receive a large bill for that health care afterwards, usually running to several thousand pounds. And they will be then chased by debt collectors for that debt. It might also be worth adding that those charges are profit-making. Mm. Yes. So it's not just the cost of the health care. There's a, there's a fee on top. It's 150%, is that right? Yes. 150% of what the hospital deems to cover an administration. That's um, kind of exorbitant. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Um, what I was going to add was that there was a, a policy put in place in 2014 which allowed hospitals to charge, and that was the one that Bethan was talking about. That wasn't necessarily implemented effectively because you were able to... Uh, receive care and then you were asked to pay for the care that you were provided. I think the thing that's really concerning is the upfront charging which came in in 2017 and that completely intervenes in a health professional's duty to care uh, and that's where the ethics of the practice is very concerning um, and why there's been a sort of step up in uh, people campaigning on it and also the cases that we see uh, come from those who are suddenly said actually no you can't receive this. Uh, people who rightfully would receive care under the policies, but also what does that mean in a universal healthcare system? In a universal healthcare system, you should be able to access care regardless of who you are. Um, and for equitable and uh, just healthcare system, that is something that will be provided to anyone regardless of the documentation. And we live in a country in which documentation was never something that you were required. We don't have ID cards for that very reason. Uh, so I, I think it's the reason that MedAct have really try to step up and I know that other organisations who work with health professionals such as Doctors of the World are really organised around it is because it's such a contradiction to the general practice of medicine um, and clinical practice that many people either don't know it, so don't know the policy and don't know how it's implemented, um, and that's something we found with surveys we've done with health professionals, or they implement it wrongly and so many more people are at risk of greater illness than they would be otherwise in yeah. the NHS. And if you look at cases like Albert's, you're supposed to get care if your treatment is urgent or immediately necessary, that's what the law says, and then be charged retrospectively if that's the case. But how you define something being urgent or immediately necessary is a very grey and difficult area. I mean, treat, treatment for prostate cancer, I would imagine most people would reasonably expect that that would come under the heading of urgent and immediately necessary care. Yet in this case, it didn't. And more and more, these kind of cases are coming outside this heading of urgent and immediately necessary care. And that is very frightening. And what's more is we're, we're asking health practitioners to make these decisions. I mean, their duty is to provide care to people. And what we're asking them to do is to decide whether or not someone deserves treatment and whether or not they should pay for it. And, and as Guppy will know, and as doctors that you work with will, will know, that that's not what they signed up for. It's also a completely unworkable practice. So when I started working on this last year, uh, we went through a procedure of understanding what it meant and trying to inform frontline uh, workers who work in uh, migrant rights organisations, but also health professionals about how you would actually carry it out. It took me about six months to get my head around it <laughs> in the first place because there are so many exemptions that exist potentially for good reasons. So public health exemptions when it comes to communicable diseases or people who are survivors of trafficking or uh, sexual violence. But all of those exemptions are complicated because nobody comes up front and says, I'm a survivor of domestic violence. Does that mean that I'm exempt? Often that information just is an exchange between health professionals because there isn't that kind of space in the healthcare system to have a trusting relationship where you would divulge so much about you. So unless you're going to have clinicians 
interrogating individuals on any particular aspect of their lived experience, it's almost certain that those who should rightfully receive care won't because they won't be able to know that they're exempt. But also this ambiguity around the the terms urgent or immediately necessary is something that pretty much no one understands how to actually implement it and whether they have the rights to say, actually, I believe this is urgent and I think the operation or the procedure should be carried out. And and I feel that the problem is that health professionals, they're already relatively disempowered in the healthcare system um, because of the way the NHS is being looked after. And this is just another thing that is making them feel even more disempowered. Yeah, I mean, I had a perfect example case of some of the difficulties facing healthcare professionals not so long ago. So I had a family who um, were here legally. They had um, what's called limited leave to remain in the country. So they had two children. They have one British child and one non-British child. And because they have a British child, they granted leave to remain in the country. Now, unfortunately, one of their children suffered a severe virus, which led to incredible brain damage. I mean, very, very serious brain damage to the extent where he became pretty much non-functioning. He's alive, but there's not a lot else that he can do at this stage. And he was admitted to hospital for a very long period of time during which time the family lost their accommodation because they had to stop working, all of this kind of thing. The hospital eventually reached the stage where they said, there's nothing else we can do for this little boy. He's only seven, bless him. Nothing else we can do for him. We need to discharge him into the community at this point, but we have to put a community nursing package in place for him. And then they said, well, is he actually eligible for a community nursing package? I was saying, yes, he is. This is what the rules say. This is how they apply. This means he is eligible for all health care. But they're saying, no, no, no. The, the Home Office are telling us, or the regulations are telling us, there's something that we need to check in order to make sure of that. And they had some kind of hospital system that they couldn't work out and they couldn't check the details of this little boy to make sure he was eligible. And for about a month, it just went round and round in circles with me saying, he is eligible. Look at this. This is the evidence. These are the documents. This is the case. But they couldn't get it signed off by anyone because they couldn't show that they'd checked the internal system that they were supposed to check and show that this poor little boy was entitled to the care that he did eventually receive. Now, that delay fortunately didn't have much impact on his overall health because he's never going to recover anyway. But in other cases where that could be a delay to actually someone getting life-saving treatment, that could be really vital, that delay. Mm. Mm. What's interesting is um, anyone who's ever worked on anything to do with migration will understand that immigration rules and immigration laws are incredibly, incredibly complex. And what we're seeing here is a transference of immigration complexity Mm. into the NHS, which is something that the NHS simply cannot cope with. And and shouldn't have the responsibility to. And I find the organising and campaigning around this issue is also really difficult because you're ultimately talking about the NHS and immigration which are like two of the hottest topics in the UK <laughs> um, and and you know we're fighting for access to healthcare for everyone and there are just so much dominant uh, falsities around the reality of what migrants uh, take from the NHS and what they provide to the NHS and the fact that many migrants internationally actually are uh, and this is sort of defined within the UCL Commission on Health and Migration which was out uh, last November that migrants are often invariably healthier, they access the health system much less, and at the same time you're more likely to be treated by a migrant in the UK in particular than you would be by any other. I think 37% of doctors are trained abroad. So there is this sort of imbalance. But I think that one of the struggles also is that the conversation always tends towards actually how much they use and the cost-benefit analysis of that. And I'm not entirely sure whether that's 
that is one way in which we enter the conversation. And there are many facts to show that whatever is being suggested by the government as health tourism is actually irrelevant. And this particular practice of trying to recoup money is also completely cost ineffective. But as a campaigner, I don't want to go down that route because I don't want to talk about the rights of healthcare under the terms of economics because it's a principle as opposed to uh, what we get out of the economy. Mm. Um, and I think that's that's a real challenge. And also the fact that because you're talking about migration and health and the NHS, the organising principles really target the trusts because the trusts have been delegated with the responsibility of interpreting this law and then putting it into policy in their own trusts. So that's the kind of challenge when we come to cases where people aren't being provided with care. We know that the only route to getting them the just treatment is to be able to target the trust managers or the decisions of the trust. But what we want to be doing is challenging those who've actually implemented it from above. And what are you actually saying about the narrative around, you know, this healthcare and, and all this kind of stuff? I mean, you said earlier on in Brexit, there are some other things happening. The hostile environment and Brexit are directly linked. Yes. It's all around attitudes towards migrants and immigration. There is a direct connection there. And without the hostile environment and that narrative around how bad migration is, I don't think Brexit would have happened. Mm. And interestingly, in terms of campaigning, the Windrush campaign and, and cases like Albert's, they put a very human face on, on things that are happening on a daily basis and have been happening for many years now. And one of the things that JCWI is greatly concerned about is that we had this huge scandal. We've had several immigration scandals since, and yet the government is pursuing plans which would essentially bring EU nationals under the same system and will most likely make a lot of them undocumented as well in, in the future. And therefore, none of these issues are being resolved. So campaigners have a lot of work to do <laughs> during the Brexit period. And, and as campaigners, it's it's quite difficult to find a space mm. to talk about things while the narrative is so toxic and, and hostile. Mm. I mean, I was going to say, actually, you've kind of touched on it, but I think Windrush showed that the hostile environment is catching people in its net who do have the right to live here and access, you know, all the services that come with that, including the NHS. And, you know, maybe you would accept that as like a mistake or an unintended outcome of hostile environment policies, but it does feel like the logical extension of what is essentially a racist policy agenda. I know JCWI published like a dossier of failings levelled at the Home Office last year um, for its role in bringing about the Windrow scandal. I mean... How would you characterise the actions and the behaviour of the government? Are cases like Albert's and all of these others just, you know, mistakes or are, is it something more sinister than that? Creating the dossier of failure was an extremely fun day in the office, I would say. <laughs> and it was mostly a list of things that we all had stored in our brains and we didn't even need to go back and really look thoroughly at what the government has done in, in the last few years. We just pulled those out from what we remembered and it was about five pages long. They're very deliberate policies and the Windrush scandal, the government can say time and time again that they didn't know about it, but they were warned previously during the passage of the legislation that this is what would happen. And we're very certain that under every single layer of immigration policy, there is another scandal like the Windrush scandal. It's interesting working really closely with lawyers, as we do at JCWI, because they quite often have become not institutionalised, but they accept the way the system is because they're trying to get status for clients. And they will often come and talk to us about, about cases that they have. And as campaigners, we're shocked at what we're hearing. And then we try and 
pursue that. And actually, that's a similar thing to what happened with Windrush. And, and very shortly afterwards, similarly with the DNA scandal that happened quite shortly after Windrush. But yeah, I mean, the government pursues these policies. They know they know that the Home Office is dysfunctional. The, the Home Office doesn't even have funding to fix its dysfunctionality if the government was inclined to do so. So I wouldn't say that they don't know about their failings. Yeah, they just don't care enough to know. It's, you know, they're aware that it will have consequences and they don't care enough about migrants to actually worry about those consequences. They think it's just migrants, we can get away with it. And there's probably something quite specific going on in the health system. So the, the legality that allowed trusts to charge individuals in the healthcare system actually came in in 2006, so it's quite a long time ago, but actually became a practice policy in 2014. I mean, we can talk about the history of the dismantling of the NHS for hours, <laughs> which we won't, but um, it's it's a very similar uh, practice in many other forms of uh, public infrastructure in which uh, you have a political practice um, an ideology around marketization and privatization um, that reduces the responsibilities of the state and sort of collective and social responsibilities. And the charging is, we're concerned about it because of the impact on the most vulnerable and those who are discriminated in society. But also, let's be concerned about the fact that once you have an infrastructure in the NHS to charge people, the group of people that are able to be charged will only just increase because you have the overseas visitors managers who are roaming around the hospitals looking for people who look a bit foreign and they'll be looking for others if we suddenly decide we want to charge for others and you've got you know the charging systems uh, and uh, the bailiffs and the links with the home office all of that is uh, an infrastructure that is once in place can increase and so it's incredibly deliberate and it started well it started a long time ago but 2012 was a really big um, change in the NHS structure that allowed for yeah a political project to be undertaken. Mm. I was going to say that it does feel like anti-immigrant sentiment although it's been you know fermented and weaponized since the dawn of political life you know it has been brought to bear on yeah, the privatisation agenda, especially with the NHS, with Brexit, obviously, as well. I mean, it was interesting. We had David Olasoga on the show back in October. We were really happy to have him with us. Um, and he talked about the inclusion of a tableau depicting the HMS Empire Windrush in the opening ceremony of the Olympics in 2012. And how, at the time, it gave him a sense that the history of black British people was being brought out of the margins and into a mainstream narrative of what is British history. But he felt that especially after Brexit, that feeling just has not endured. And it feels like things are much worse now than they were a few years ago, even if that was only an illusory sense that things were better. Um, are things worse now in terms of how, I guess, migrants are being treated in public discourse than they were? Anytime you mention a migrant, it's toxic. Um, no one wants to talk about migrants in a positive context, which was, again, the really interesting thing about the Windrush scandal, which is the first time that there was really an opportunity to talk about migrants in a positive way as a result of something terrible the government had done to them. And I think it's important that we don't lose the momentum from that. But with Brexit, the country is still so split that... I think any time you bring migrants into the conversation, it, it splits things further. And I think, you know, that's a mistake on the part of people on both sides of the campaign, and especially on the Remain campaign, for not actively standing up for migrants. 
it's very, been very much as well a question of divide and rule. So, you know, it's the group of undeserving gets bigger all the time because we keep chipping off little mm. bits. So, you know, initially saying, oh, well, refugees, they're actually all right. They're people with a genuine reason to come here. But then actually maybe they're not so all right. You know, if they're coming across the channel from France, then maybe actually they're not refugees. There's something else instead and we don't want them here. And migrants might be the first group which get demonised, but then we're seeing, you know, people who are disabled and the tests that they're going through are getting more and more restrictive, those on benefits. So the group gets bigger and bigger by just splitting off those those little groups and saying, hey, those people might be all right, but these ones, we really don't want these ones here. And it, that's, that's the narrative, that's what's happening. Yeah, the good migrant, bad migrant narrative yeah. is equally as, as yeah. toxic sometimes and, and hard to challenge. You know, why why justify one group over another group of people? But sometimes that's the easiest way to open up a conversation. So that's quite a challenge for us as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's always this talk around, you know, economic migrants. Economic migrants are terrible people. An economic migrant could be an American banker in Canary Wharf who's been brought over on an intercompany transfer. Or it could be a Nigerian single mother who is practically starving and has come over for a better life for her children. You know, it encompasses a huge range of people and many have very, very genuine reasons for being here, whatever those reasons might be. Mm. And I think we've failed to accept that people will move consistently. Migration is a fact of life. Uh, British people will go elsewhere. People from elsewhere will come here. And um, we've failed to talk about that at all. Mm. Yeah, migration enriches us. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's another figure that I find, again, I don't want to wheel it out because it's an economic argument, but a figure that says that with every 1% of rise in migration or immigration into a host country, the GDP per capita increases by 2%. So the sort of economic argument is positive towards immigration. But I, I think the question that you asked around like has it got worse one of my side projects which i really enjoy is to review economic policies from uh, the world war onwards and um, <laughs> and how they have basically restricted access to public services for those who have migrated into the country and how that sort of has changed so the institutionalization of racist policies is something that we can't forget and i think often when we say has racism got worse or like is it more prevalent now because of brexit everyone go straight to the kind of like street racism and harassment. And definitely there's like a, a, you know, a friend of mine set up iStreetWatch, which was to sort of pick up on harassment in the streets and be able to locate it. And that happened just after Brexit because there was a sense that street harassment had increased. Uh, But let's just not forget about the people who have the power and resources to actually implement something at a structural level Mm. that is fundamentally racist and xenophobic and enables it to sustain that that discourse in the political narrative so that it just becomes a normality and that is the target that we should be focusing on as opposed to our people getting harassed in the streets um, and and what division feels like in communities is a result of what happens at an institutional and structural level. Mm. And as Bethan mentioned earlier, the hostile environment policies impact on everyone but particularly anyone who looks or sounds foreign so has a foreign sound name is a, is a person of colour and the government knew that the hostile environment policies would have that impact when they implemented them and knew very well that it would impact on British citizens of colour. And so inherently they didn't care in the first instance that their policies would have resounding impacts on British people too. And who those British people are is very very clear. (laughs) Has the work that you've been doing at Praxis and at JCWN and MEDACT as well 
Has that shifted, like, or has it changed focus in the last couple of years as a result of these policies? It's not just as a result of these specific hostile environment policies, but much bigger policy changes that's really, I think, impacted on our work at Praxis more specifically, which was the the cuts to legal aid. Because previously, you could get legal aid for most immigration matters. So we would do a little bit of immigration work, we'd do a little bit of benefits work, a little bit of everything else, and all helping different migrants. Whereas now, our work is almost solely immigration and destitution because people can no longer get the help they need from legal aid to make an immigration application. So you get lots of people who have very good reasons for being here. They actually come within the law. They have a right to be here if they can make that application, but they can't get the help to do that. And while they can't get the help to do that, they're destitute. So since that time, a huge amount of our work has now been focused into just helping people make those applications so that they can get what they actually should be getting and get their status here sorted out one way or another because no one gets the help to do that anymore. And I would say that our legal team probably experiences exactly the same thing and they're very good at getting exceptional case funding. Um, As a campaigns team, we have focused heavily on the hostile environment and challenging those aspects, but we've also worked quite hard on undocumented migrants uh, just in general because what they're experiencing as a result of that is extremely detrimental. Access to justice underpins everything that we do. And MedEx has been working on access to healthcare for almost a decade um, and it's often led by our members who are part of a group called the Migrant Solidarity Group. Uh, so issues around uh, migrant and refugee access to care has been a concern for a really long time. But it's in the last two years that we put a concerted effort to this particular policy and we now have an access to healthcare campaigner who is solely focused on this policy because we see it as um, so troubling. But yeah, there has been work in the past around access to care and detention and the fact that we're talking about migrants and refugees and people of colour accessing the healthcare system. And for us, if we're thinking about a universal healthcare system that is accessible to everyone, then we have to think about also those who live with disabilities, uh, LGBTQI people, you know, single parents, uh, and those who are most marginalised in society, and the fact that the health system is just not set up to cater for them. So the last two years has been around migrants and refugees, but we consider all of those groups as important. Yeah, I was just thinking as you were talking about one of the the hostile environment policies which has had a big impact on our work, which is the Home Office policy of putting a no-recourse public funds condition on leave granted to people who were on a pathway to settlement. What does that mean? Yeah, I was going to say, at first glance, that sounds really reasonable. You think, oh yeah, these people are from abroad, they've come here, they want to live here. Before they are British citizens, why should they access benefits? Why should they be allowed to do that? So why should they be be able to sign on as unemployed or get council housing? There's a a strong popular movement to say, yes, that's fine, that's right. But these people are usually here because they have strong family ties here, they have uh, been here for a long time, or they have family members who are British citizens or have settled here because of their length of time here. They're not going anywhere. They're on a pathway to settlement, so they'll be here and they will eventually become settled and British. And what we're doing to them in the interim is removing that safety net which enables them, if they do suddenly fall out of work, to be able to get benefits, to be able to make sure that they have a secure place for their family to live. So we have a huge caseload of people who have been working, they've been supporting themselves and something suddenly happened to them. We had one man who um, suddenly had massive kidney failure and then suddenly they're told, actually, while you're out of work, you can't access anything. And they're left completely without any form of support. Now, you can apply 
to give them recourse to public funds, but it's a long, complicated process. It takes a lot of evidence and a lot of work to do that. And then after that's all sorted out, you then have to go through the benefit system. And again, this is part of this chipping away of a universal entitlement, this universal safety net that was set up in the form of the welfare state to give everyone who was ordinarily resident here and settled that safety net, that security. I work with a lot of single mothers. I'm a single mother myself. I earn a reasonable salary. I know how hard it is to live in London on that salary. If you're a single mother on a zero-hours contract trying to support a family and children, it's impossible without recourse to public funds. You can't do that. And what we're teaching those children is that you are lesser people here. You do not have the same rights and entitlements as other children who are here in almost exactly the same circumstances. And how those children will grow up, their expectations of the world and their attitudes, I find that quite frightening and quite worrying because we're telling them right now, you're not worthy of this, you're different, you're outside of the system. And the the counter-argument to that is often like, well, we can't provide everything for everyone. And I just find... That's so frustrating because um, I think, okay, focusing again on the health system, if you're looking at what we spend money on in the healthcare system and then how we can save money, let's think about private finance initiatives um, and where the profits of private finance initiatives go into tax havens. They don't get funneled back into the health system about the inflated costs of drugs and how pharmaceutical companies are basically holding the NHS ransom with inflated costs of drugs um, and the fact that you've got executive pays that are excessive and we're not paying our nurses enough. So like, let's just work out where the finances are going in the health system. We actually do have the resources to be able to provide more care. We do have a very equitable healthcare system and um, we're just a little bit under-resourced with doctors, which is a recent study had found. But it's not that there's no money. <laughs> um, yeah. And the more that we can take leadership on universal healthcare and um, support other countries to do the same, then the concept of whether someone has rightful access to care will be irrelevant because everyone will, regardless of where they are. And the concept of borders will be irrelevant because it will be something that is uh, instituted internationally and can be resourced and I think the other thing that we have to think about is let's put resources towards the prevention of illness. And that's something that I feel has completely lost in the narrative around how much care costs. Yes, we have an ageing population, but a large burden of disease in the UK comes from so-called preventable diseases. But when I say preventable, the environment in which we live in almost forces us into a diabetic, like high-calorie, um, inactive lifestyle because we don't have the economic choices to go out of that. So let's create an environment that means that we can practice a healthy living and be able to access food and live in safe houses and get good wages so that we stay healthier for longer and so we don't have to use the healthcare system as much. And as long as we can do that, then uh, the health system will be able to sustain itself because it won't be treating people for things that are technically avoidable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as well, I mean, going back to that economic argument, so much of these things are short-term cost-cutting measures which have much longer-term health mm. or other costs. Mm. So the costs of keeping people in poverty, we know longer-term that the social impact of that is huge. Mm. We know that denying people healthcare at an early stage when things are preventable actually costs a lot more further down the line. And we've had stories from doctors of you know pregnant women turning up when they're actually in labour having had no mm. antenatal checks or care at all. And the huge costs and risks of that because they're giving birth then without any pre-medical history, without any healthcare up front. That's not saving. That's just about a worldview. Mm. It's definitely not saving if you're asking people to turn up when something is urgent. Mm. It's not logical. Urgent, complicated and requiring lots of aftercare. Yeah. Mm. So is there any hope on the horizon things from either campaigns that you've orchestrated or communities that you're involved with? 
that offer, I don't know, some moments of... <laughs> some moments of hope or inspiration? There are some exciting, you know, smaller, low-income, formerly colonised countries that are putting their resources together um, and providing universal healthcare. So Bolivia just rolled out an insurance scheme, some really great stuff in Nepal. Who And I've got a list here. Thailand just celebrated 10 years of its universal coverage scheme, which has dramatically reduced impoverishment from out-of-pocket payments. Um, and so... There are countries that assumedly don't have the resources, but actually know where the resources should be put should they have some. Um, and that is in the healthcare system, because once you have a functioning society that um, ensures that everyone is healthy, people are active um, and they can contribute to society. And uh, so, yeah, in those countries, that's that's great. But around here, it's a struggle. <laughs> I would say that that the, the conversation is open after the Windrush scandal. And I think we saw a huge amount of public support and understanding for a situation that they simply had no concept of before. Um, Brexit, although it's, you know, a terrible thing which may do terrible things to the country, it offers us a space to start talking about migrants differently because it's bringing in a group of people who have traditionally sort of been accepted and will give us an opportunity to, to talk about the system which may now bring them into it. But, yeah, I feel hopeful that people are willing to talk about migration in a different way, and we've seen that, and we just need to have the right conversations. Yeah, I mean, I think you'll always have a small minority of people around migration who are very vocal and whose minds will not be changed. And then you will have the minority who are very vocal and very pro-migration. And then there's the people in the middle who often they have an initial anti-migrant bias, but when you actually start to talk to them and unpick that, or they see some of the issues like the Windrush campaign, then they actually think, oh, well, hold on a second, what's going on here? And they do think a little bit more about that. And I think having some of those light moments, that kind of aha moment, yes, this is wrong, I can clearly see that. I mean, the Daily Mail did a big article on Windrush and what a scandal it was. Mm. You know, we like to revile the Daily Mail and rightly so, but if you can win over some Daily Mail readers with that cause, then, you know, that's incredible. That's fantastic. You know, if we can get to those people and say, actually, this is what's happening, and they say, wow, that's wrong, that's wonderful. Mm. So any uh, calls to action from any of you? Anything coming up that you're working on that people should know about, be involved in? I mean, like I said, MedAct organises healthcare professionals. So if you work in the health system and you feel that you might have a responsibility around implementing this, but you don't want to, we are organising in particular trusts. Um, so at the moment in BART uh, with healthcare workers who are concerned about the policy and trying to shift the policy within their own trust. Um, several others around London and across the UK in Liverpool, Birmingham, Manchester and a few other places. So do get in touch with us. We have some resources like a toolkit that can help explain um, and we're working closely with a grassroots organisation called Docs Not Cops who have been instrumental in highlighting this campaign across the UK. The uh, much-touted immigration bill is coming before Parliament for its second reading on Monday. So while there isn't anything immediate, there will be plenty of calls for action to lobby your politicians and maybe turn up to some demonstrations so if you just keep an eye out on jcwi's social media um, or our website then i'm sure there'll be plenty of things for people to do praxis is always working hard trying to sort out um, individual cases but i think for me a lot of um, 
what I would want people to think about is about solidarity with migrants and about denormalising this presentation of your passport or things at mm. points where you don't actually need to. When you register with a GP, the GP doesn't need to see your passport. And it's up to the people who are white British people who can get away with it to say, no, I'm not going to show you my passport. You don't need to see that in order to help other people to do that. When schools were collecting um, census data about children who were there, they had no legal rights to do that. And it's up to the parents who can afford to do that because they're in a position of safety to say, no, I'm not going to go along with this. It's about thinking a little bit more about why is this happening and what does this mean for other people who aren't like me. Mm. All right. Well, um, thanks very much, Beth and Minnie and Guppy. And you can find out more about the work they're doing at praxis.org.uk, jcwi.org.uk and medact.org. And once again, for anyone that's interested in a bit of wider reading, some of Pluto's books that have been published 50% off for the next month, just go to plutobooks.com forward slash podcast reading and use the coupon code podcast at the checkout. Thank you all for listening and we'll be back next month with another episode of Radicals in Conversation. Radicals in Conversation.